0: Thank you so much for coming uh, today. It's a great pleasure for me to uh, be here among Roger Pilon and, and Pete Bedke and Terziweke uh, to speak about Bruno Leone at 101. Uh, we originally planned, actually, his 100th birthday party at Cato in December, but we needed to postpone because of a snowstorm was announced and a federal government closed down. But at least that day, no pieces of legislation were passed in Washington, Mm. so Bruno Leone would have been very happy indeed. Uh, I just want to give you a few um, remarks in Bruno Leone the man and the libertarian rather than Bruno Leone the scholar because um, we have far more interesting thing to listen to by Roger, Pete, and Todd. Bruno Leone was born, Leone 101, in 1913 and died tragically in 1967. He was a legal philosopher by training and an amazingly lively man. In remembering Leone at the University of Pavia in 1967, Hayek said that Leone was a man, quote, unique among the citizens of the world, end quote. He was deeply involved in academic life and professional life as a lawyer in politics and in the public debate as a columnist for the Italian newspaper, 24 Ore, Financial Daily. Perhaps because of all these many commitments, he married quite late in life. Uh, His wife, uh, Silvana, and his daughter, Didi, survived him. Uh, When her father died, Didi was only six years old. They're now passionate uh, guardians of his memory. Among scholars and more broadly within libertarian circles, Bruno Leone is widely known as the author of one book, Freedom and the Law. In Freedom and the Law, Leone places himself firmly in the research program that Karl Menger inaugurated. What Leoni wanted to do was a Mengerian analysis of law seen as an example of organically grown institution. Well, that's really uh, a fitting and important research program in a century like the last one. It was basically the century of over-legislation of law as an artifact. Now, I'm very excited um, that Pete Bertke, Roger Pilon, and Todd will explore these and other topics including the interplay of Leone's idea uh, with the important works of Friedrich von Hayek. He was a great friend of Hayek, as he was a great friend of many champions of liberty he met in the Montpelier society of which he was president, among the others, Jim Buchanan. His work actually extended far beyond freedom and the law. His most important contributions may actually lie in his theory of power and law as individual claims, which is a facet of his thought which is very seldom explored. To give you an idea, our own Instituto Bruno Leone is now publishing Leone's collected works in e-book form. Leone's collected works in e-book will basically be eleven volumes, including contributions <clears throat> to legal theory, epistemology, polit- history of political thought, political science, and some occasional journalism. One thing that says a lot about the curiosity of Leon is that he was a passionate book reviewer. He was constantly reviewing books coming mostly for the Anglo- from the Anglo-Saxon world, but also uh, from the German academic uh, environment. He founded a scholarly journal we were talking about before, Il Politico, published by the University of Pavia, and in that journal, he was basically never tired of signaling and putting in the Italian public attention books and authors uh, that were to be, to be famous in quite a few years. I think a few words on the context in which Leoni lived and worked are perhaps in order. Leone spent his youth under fascism, and during the Second World War, He fought gallantly with the ally, not against the allies. Uh, He learned his English, actually, basically by working with the British counterespionage. He loved the Anglo-Saxon culture, which is very remarkable in that time in Italian culture. He married an Italian woman. But even though he married an Italian woman, they got married in London. you know, um, that's quite uncommon, not just getting married in London for an Italian, Italian, but having that kind of deep and profound appreciation of um, the English and the American uh, cultural war. These ideas were kind of alien in the Italy of the time. Um, You may not remember that, but the second biggest Italian party in any election, up to 1992 was the Communist Party. And though the Communists couldn't really gain power um, in Italian democracy, they exercised a pervasive uh, influence over Italian political culture. Now, interestingly enough, Italians now remember the 50s and the 60s, when Leone was alive, uh, as a time of relatively restrained state intervention certainly a time uh, of good governance, as opposed to massive nationalization and the enrollment of millions in the public sector that followed in the 70s. Indeed, few people, though, spoke up against the emerging interventionism, and Leone was one of them. I think he anticipated very well the story of the Italian Republic insofar as the economy is concerned by pointing out, quote, that democratic socialism is quite capable to ruin a national economy, but it cannot undermine the strength of communist demagoguery, End quote. Mm. He had a great passion for spreading idea. He was uh, never tired of organizing conferences, bringing people together, attempting uh, to influence the Italian environment, something he couldn't do uh, to the fullest extent because of his untimely death. Uh, In his journalism, in particular, he applied his criticism of over-legislation to specific (coughs) policy cases. Uh, He opposed housing and land planning, the establishment of a national health service, and he advocated competition in in everything. I'd like just to give you a little quote that shows uh, the wisdom of Leon. It goes back to a 1952 article dealing with European unification. It was a subject already at the time. He was, of course, all in favor of increasing trade, cooperation, exchange among Europeans, but he opposed European centralization. And he opposed European centralization on this ground. He remarked that, quote, an ingenious system exists to accommodate the needs of the most disparate people, a system that strictly prevents politicians to devise priority table for economic goods or decrease the grant to the ones, the resources that are denied to the others. That system is called the market economy, end quote. I've spoken too much. Uh, I should really stop here, but I just wanted to give you uh, this quote from Leone's journalism, not because they embody the most original streams of thought of Leone, but because they give you a glimpse of how exceptional, outspoken as a libertarian he was uh, in the Italy of that time, when he was basically an alone, an alone voice. So he would have been very happy uh, to be remembered and discussed uh, at the Cato Institute. Now I shall give the floor uh, to yeah, Roger Pilon that doesn't need any introduction in this auditorium.
1: Well, thank you, Alberto, for that uh, summary of uh, Bruno Leone's life. I'm going to be talking more about his ideas. Uh, We're here to mark the 101st uh, birthday of the late Bruno Leone and to reflect on his work Uh, which was best represented, perhaps, in the series of lectures he gave in 1958 and were later collected in his seminal collection, Freedom and the Law. Uh, Leone was a polyglot, uh, comfortable working in at least four languages, and a polymath, a legal philosopher, whose thought ranged from law and political science to economics, philosophy, history, and beyond, But because it was wide-ranging, addressing different political and legal systems, both in time and in several modern countries, it was largely abstract and short on applications, making it often difficult to know precisely what the implications might be for any particular country or system today. Nevertheless, the main outlines of Leone's argument are clear enough, in the few minutes I have I'll sketch them, place them in the intellectual currents of his time and then draw a few implications as best I can for how his argument might bear on American constitutional developments, especially as those pertain to the rights-based branch of the modern libertarian legal movement that we've charted here at the Cato Institute over the past quarter of a century. Let's begin, however, with a note that Alberto sounded, namely that Leone placed himself firmly in the research program that Carl Menger had started, which sought solutions to the most important problems of the theoretical sciences in general, and theoretical economics in particular, by better understanding the origin and change of organically created social structures. Leone uh, sought that understanding in law, seen as Alberto put it, as an example of an organically grown institution rather than as an artifact, and he sought in particular to draw a connection between law and markets. A classical liberal writing in the post-war period, Leone saw all about him in Europe and even in America, the rise of the modern welfare state grounded not in organically grown law but in legislation, all of which was increasingly restricting individual freedom through legislatively crafted social planning. Yet it was mainly economists, he noted, not lawyers or political scientists who were standing athwart this development, notwithstanding that freedom was not only an economic or a political, but probably above all, he said, a legal concept. But over the years, freedom had been given often incompatible definitions, he noted. So the first task he set for himself, drawing on the analytical philosophy that dominated the field at the time, was to craft a more precise definition of freedom, which he did by drawing the analytical connection between freedom and constraint, and more exactly, the absence of constraint, yet allowing constraint to secure freedom, but not, erroneously, simply to enhance the well-being of others in a way that could not be universalized. Obviously, I'm summarizing here, glossing over a far more complex analysis, uh, let me add simply that Leone was wrestling with issues that were in the air at the time. Recall Sir Isaiah Berlin's efforts in his famous Two Concepts of Liberty and the, his distinction between negative and positive liberty, an effort, uh, an early effort to distinguish what Maurice Cranston would later recast in the language of rights, distinguishing real and supposed rights. There were problems with Berlin's analysis, which his critics were only too anxious to point out, but Leone came closer to the mark when he wrote almost in passing that freedom has little meaning when it is contemplated only by the expression from something and does not include what it is that one is free to do. It remained for an American Uh, analytical philosopher Gerald McCallum to argue systematically some years later that freedom is always and everywhere a three-place predicate, the abstruse details of which I needn't go into here. But I go into this much at least because it suggests that Leone was moving in the right direction and because if I'm not reading too much into what he wrote, he seems to have understood what others of us later came to grasp more fully, namely, that freedom alone, because it is subject to the nominal expansive definition, may not be rich enough idea to do the work that he and others wanted it to do. Thus, in his essay a few years later, namely, The Law as Individual Claim, he can be seen as having made a second important contribution by shifting the focus from freedom to rights, One can have freedom from any number of constraints, human or not, but to have a right is to have a claim against another person," Leone said. Thus, rights denote relationships between claimants and correlative obligation holders. They are, as analytical philosophers would say, richer five-place predicates, and they give us a stronger analytical tool for discussing the moral, political, legal, and economic issues before us, I'll revisit this point shortly. To return to Leone's earlier argument, however, he wrote that today, freedom and constraint pivot more and more on legislation, even in the common law countries. Indeed, the idea that law might not be identical with legislation seems odd to both students of law and to laymen, he added. Yet far from being required by modern technology, much less providing the certainty it promises, Ever-changing legislation, especially when coupled with the administrative regulations that inevitably follow, had created conditions that have constrained freedom, frustrated creativity, and made private planning increasingly difficult. If this sounds familiar, think Obamacare or Sarbanes-Oxley. Remember that Leona was writing in 1958 when the modern administrative state was a shadow of its present form. We come then to the remedy Leone proposed. Those who value the individual freedom that modern legislation has increasingly restricted are advised by Leone to look to the Roman and English approaches to law. Both shared the idea that law was something to be discovered more than to be enacted, he wrote. And that discovery was entrusted to jurisconsults and judges respectively, not to legislators. Legislation, such as it was under Roman law and English common law, was intended chiefly as a compilation of past rulings, a far cry from today's legislation, expressing the will of a parliamentary majority regarding some public policy or program producing winners and losers in the process. The presumption, Leone concluded, must always be against legislation, which should be rejected whenever, among other things, It is used merely as a means to subject minorities to majorities and whenever the individuals at issue can realize their objectives without depending on the decision of the group and without constraining any other people to do what they would never do without constraint. And the very old principle at play here, Leone wrote, is biblical and confusion. Do not do unto others what you would not wish others to do unto you. Experience shows, he added, that in contrast with the positive formulation of the Golden Rule, there are no minorities in any group relating to a whole series of things that should not be done. Even people who are possibly ready to do these things to others, he said, admit that they do not want others to do these same things to them. The vision that follows for Leone is well known among libertarians, Drawing on von Mises' critique of central economic planning and offering his own critique of political representation, Leone generalizes, no legislator, he writes, and I quote, would be able to establish by himself without some kind of continuous collaboration on the part of all the people concerned, the rules governing the actual behavior of everybody in the endless relationships that each has with everyone else the actual behavior of people is continuously adapting itself to changing conditions. Note the Austrian implications here. In the process, he calls for drastic reduction in the number of matters about which people ought to be represented, a point I'll return to in a moment. Central to Leone's vision, however, is the role of judges as under the English common law judges whose jurisdiction was limited simply by the fact that they responded only to the complaints of the parties appearing before them, drawing on reason and custom to adjudicate those complaints, but in the process creating a body of law that was common to the realm. Edward Corwin, in his 1928 and 29 essay entitled The Higher Law Background of American Constitutional Law, put the point succinctly, and I quote, the notion that the common law embodied right reason furnished from the 14th century its chief claim to be regarded as higher law. And that affords me a segue to possible implications for American law, and American constitutional law in particular, and there are several. To begin, it is difficult to determine the direct bearing of Leone's work on American thought, especially American legal thought although it was certainly mediated to some extent through F.A. Hayek's writings. The parallels among the ideas, however, are clear, starting with the idea that the vision of limited government aimed at ensuring individual liberty that Leone offers is precisely the vision America's founders contemplated through our founding documents. In particular, most of life under the Constitution was meant to be lived, not under federal legislation but under the common law crafted by state courts concerning everything from property to torts, common law crimes, contracts, business and domestic relationships, and more. At the federal level, Congress's powers were enumerated and thus limited to truly national concerns, such as foreign affairs, free interstate commerce, immigration, intellectual property, coinage, the standards of weights and measures, and so forth. Central planning was the furthest thing from the founders' minds. But that started to change systematically with the rise of progressivism late in the 19th century, which the New Deal court institutionalized following Franklin Roosevelt's infamous 1937 court packing threat. What follows was exactly uh, what Leone describes. Legislation replacing common law already underway was now the order of the day with judges increasingly engaged not in common law adjudication, but in statutory interpretation and individual liberty was in the balance. The judicial deference that characterized this area was not the end of the judicial story, however. For in the mid to late 50s, when Leone was writing, the Supreme Court became more active, or so it seemed to many conservatives, In promoting a political agenda that progressives had been unable to secure through legislation, through litigation, um, excuse me, through uh, legislation. Some of it long overdue, let me note, but other parts of it utterly inconsistent with constitutional principles. The conservative backlash that followed, however, like the progressive agenda it targeted, little complained about legislation as such. Rather, both sides by now were comfortable with small d democracy and the legislative power it sanctioned. They simply differed about what legislation they supported. That afforded an opportunity for a third approach looking not unlike Leone's, which called upon the court to be more engaged, contra-conservatives of the judicial restraint school, but engaged not in finding welfare rights, as progressives had been urging, but in both reviving the constitutional doctrine of enumerated powers and protecting the rights Americans had once enjoyed at common law, both of which aims were largely anathema to progressives. That third way, of course, was a call for restoring classical liberalism, first through the courts, then, more realistically, through a long slog aimed at public opinion and, eventually, the political branches. That work began in the mid-70s, first with the definition of freedom and then with a shift in focus to rights, as noted earlier. That shift was especially important, first, because it was a a challenge to the progressives' rights revolution, the attempt over the 60s to secure so-called new property, namely welfare rights, and second, of perhaps greater importance, because it recast the issues in language with which courts could better grapple. But notice that it was perfectly consistent with the direction that Leone's thinking had been taking a decade earlier. As that rights-based libertarian legal thought was unfolding, however, it grew more out of a Lockean natural rights theory than out of economics as such, unlike the American law and economics movement that had been underway since at least a decade before. Not surprisingly, the two movements most often reached the same conclusions Albeit for different reasons, but the natural rights strain invoked economic efficiency most often not as an initial touchstone, but as an ex post make way. Still, efficiency did weigh in when legislation seemed necessary, as in the adjudication of disputes over nuisance and risk and the crafting of remedies and due process principles. All of which brings me to two concluding questions about Leone's thought. First, because it is so abstract, as I noted early on, I remain unclear about the adjudicative processes he has in mind. He writes, for example, and I quote, that, quote, the whole process can be described as a sort of vast, continuous, and chiefly spontaneous collaboration between the judges and the judged in order to discover what the people's will is in a series of definite instances, a collaboration that in many respects may be compared to that existing among all the participants in a free market." End of quote. That analogy of legal processes to market processes, as if common law adjudication were akin to transactional law, runs throughout Leone's argument. Yet the two processes are quite different. In markets, there are only winners, both parties to a transaction leave better off, which explains why the transaction took place. In adjudication, one party wins and the other loses. It's not even like going before a rabbi. A second issue about which I am unclear was just mentioned, the role of legislation, if any, in Leone's vision. At times he allows for it, but at other times he writes, and I quote, that a characteristic of free trade systems seems also to be that they are compatible only with such legal and political systems as have little or no recourse to legislation, at least as far as private life and business are concerned. Yet in the areas mentioned above, we resort to legislation because reason comes to its end. In large number problems like automobile pollution, for example, private adjudication between individuals affords no solution. Examples like that could be multiplied, of course, but it's crucial to distinguish legislation aimed at fleshing out the libertarian world once reason and custom have gone as far as they can from legislation aimed at promoting some social redistributive scheme where Leone's arguments are spot on. Still, Leone's work is a goldmine that can profitably be read today And at the time, it was sorely needed to complement and advance the work of the economists of his day. I look forward to hearing from Peter and Todd, who can perhaps clarify these remaining matters. Thank you.
0: Thank you. If I can just add something, it was mentioned that... um, Leone had a strong fascination, a great interest in, in Austrian economics. It's one of the reasons why we got Pete here. Um, once upon a time, I had the privilege and the duty to put these books into boxes. And there were two books among Leonis that were completely consumed uh, because of reading and notes taken on the side. And these two books were not legal books, but they were actually... Uh, Ludwig von Mises' Human Action and Murray Rothbard Man, Economy and State. But of course, I mean, besides learning of economics and interaction with, with these people, um, Leone had trainings in economics because he studied under Gioello Solari, but he also studied under Luigi Inaudi. And of course, he was a political scientist, which in Italy meant at that time he needed to know very well the work of uh, Wilfredo Pareto. And with this, I leave the floor to Pete, who will be speaking on Hayek, Leoni, and the law as the fifth factor of production.
2: Okay, Thanks great. Um, so, yes, the original uh, panel was canceled because of an impending snowstorm. If I remember correctly, we didn't get much snow that day, um, but we didn't get government either, so that was a net win. Um, but uh, um, it actually turns out to be very good timing because of those of you who can hang around Cato today. Bill Easter will be talking later on, and my talk is actually gonna be related to um, this. I'm, uh, I'm stuck uh, here between law, uh, legal philosophy, and law as a social science. And I'm a social scientist stressing the importance of law for the ability of individuals to realize peaceful cooperation and productive specialization. And so it's kind of an interesting panel to put these things together, and I want to thank uh, Alberto for doing so. Before the uh, we start, we came up here. We were talking back, uh, I guess you say backstage. I guess here, actually, downstairs, and uh, we're talking about when you know the when we first were exposed to Leone's work. Um, so Todd and I have a shared history in this, in that we were um, introduced to Leone at the Institute for Humane Studies. Uh, back in the um, early 80s, mid-80s, early 80s, mid-80s, and uh, we had this IHS version of the book, so it wasn't the one that you have today. Um, this book was originally published in uh, by uh, uh, Van Nostrom Press in the early 1960s, um, which was kind of a classical liberal series that they had, um, and then it was brought out by Nash, a uh, publisher in the early 1970s, and they had boxes and boxes of boxes of these bright orange books, um, and they would hand them out. But what was fascinating about that uh, time is that you were introduced to Leone within the context of a sort of a bigger set of ideas, which were going on. So if you are old enough to remember this time, uh, there was a challenge of the idea that, that the reason why um, development took place had to do a lot with state capacity, what we would now today call state capacity in unified states. And it turns out that that actually isn't true. And so in a wonderful book that came out around the same time by Rosenberg and Burzell called How the West Grew Rich, they challenged this hypothesis. And the reason why Europe took off was precisely because of polycentricism. And they were popularizing a literature that was emerging among economic historians, mainly driven by a man named Eric Jones, which challenged the idea that the reason why Europe and why did development take place in, 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 uh, in, in Europe was because of the divided city-states and the competition among all of them. And so what we think of as uh, kind of a messy process is actually the reason why we ended up by having this idea. And so among all the IHS youngins, right, our pups as you refer to it, We got introduced to Leone, and then we also got introduced to Harold Berman, almost at identical time, as well as reading this. And the the idea was is that the law emerged out of a conflict between these various different competing uh, vehicles of jurisdiction rather than the idea of having a unified code. Now, why does that matter? It matters when you think back to the economics, the kind of arguments that Hayek obviously gave. But also, Buchanan gave about federalism and creating the kind of structure within American federalism, which in, would generate through that competition a better idea of uh, the way we should arrange our affairs. And so, um, how does Leone fit in this? And I've been sort of fascinated by. It. In fact, it's a kind of a weird thing. I don't know. I, I think Todd was involved, and in we just recently uh, had to do some rec- uh, recollections on Walter Grinder. Um, And thinking back. And I I pretty much, I've had a 30 year career since that time. And I've been to quite a number of different universities and stuff, written quite a number of books. And I think every single one of them actually was given to me by a question by Walter (laughs) Grinder or Leonard Liggio and told how I should go and pursue it, even though I don't think about it all the time. But that time at IHS was very much, and this is very much, this is joint work with my colleague at George Mason University, Rosalino uh, Candela. and uh, what we're looking at here is the relationship between Hayek and Leone and law as a fifth factor production. So let me like, sort of walk through the argument. Uh, okay, so that's Bruno Leone. There's a nice picture of him. Uh, as you know, he's the author of Freedom and the Law, editor of El Politico, and active member of MPS. Alberto's already given us this background, so I can go through this rather quickly. Um, Hayek and Leone, our argument, and by the way, the paper's available outside at the the registration desk. We published it in the Atlantic Economic Journal. Um, Hayek and Leone had a shared appreciation of common law as exemplary cases of invisible hand explanations or spontaneous order theory. Hayek and Leone pushed the argument further and argued that not only could the law evolve without central direction, but that in so doing it provided the foundation of a modern economy. In emphasizing the role of law in the development of a market economy, Hayek and Leone paved a path for a genuine institutional analysis of economic development. Um, So if you think about this, if you stay around for the Easterly talk this afternoon, uh, what is Bill actually arguing? Um, In the first book, Elusive Quest for Growth, he's arguing that incentives matter. And that incentives matter even when money's coming from the World Bank and everything. So incentives matter, incentives matter, incentives matter. Second book is all about planners versus searchers, which is exactly the kind of point here. The planners assume a level of knowledge, which in fact the searchers are discovering constantly. And in the last book, again, what we have is a positive case of where it is that the... uh, Yeah, yeah, so, okay. So where the... uh, uh, you know, the the sort of experts are trying to stand outside of the system and how that uh, affects the process of economic development. So it's real basic economics. You should understand this whenever you talk about economics. The only way to increase real income is to increase real productivity, right? There's no other way to increase real income except through increasing real productivity. The intuition behind this is, if you, t- if you give a man a fish, he eats for a day. You teach a man to fish, he eats for the rest of his life, right? We want to teach people to fish. All right, real productivity can be increased through either improvements in physical capital, they have better machines to work with, improvements in human capital, they work with those machines smarter, or improvements in organizational man- in management of the physical and human capital which in- implies in here the rules under which. Rules of governance within firms, but also the rules of governance in which people interact with each other and with the, uh, and with the environment. Um, this is P.T. Bower's basic idea from subsistence to exchange. Small-scale trading has to become medium-sized trading, has to become large-scale trading. This is the path of development. The question is in the arrows not in the observed circles, right? It's like, how is it that you transition from small-scale trading to medium-sized trading to large-scale trading? Mancer Olson uh, wrote a wonderful essay many years ago now called Big Bills Lying on the Sidewalk, and one of the things he pointed out is that if I get on a plane and go anywhere in the world, I'm gonna see trading behavior. You know, Ian, you've probably been in how many countries, you know, uh, most around the world, right? And everywhere you go, you're going to see bizarre markets, right? People swapping things, right, for money and whatnot. Why is it that all of that market activity doesn't get translated into advanced economic development? It's because of the rules of the game, which don't allow extended contracts to, what, anonymous interactors, All right, and unless you have that division of labor spreading throughout the society, you're going to end up by having truncated economic development. This is a basic idea from Adam Smith that the division of labor is limited by the extent of the market. You can get a virtuous cycle here. You grow the market, you grow the division of labor, the division of labor gets thicker, right? That enables greater productivity, and so forth and so on. So, the way that we normally think about this is that we treat the rules of the game as fixed and given. And then we examine the incentives that individuals have in the use of land, labor, and capital, and even entrepreneurship. This, again, is one of the discussions that I don't have time to today to do this, but this is like what's going on in the Piketty book, right, is that you're talking about rates of return on uh, sort of uh, basically a fixed asset, um, and there's not a discussion in there over the rules of the game. So, in fact, you're using data on a lot of this stuff in which the environment within which these economic activities are are taking place isn't what's being discussed. But yet that's exactly what we need to be discussing, the rules of the game that influence the use and interaction between land, labor, capital, and entrepreneurship. Just to give you a quick example, Andre Schleifer uh, and Kevin Murphy did a really cool paper many years ago on the allocation of entrepreneurial talent. And one of the things that they pointed out is that societies in which the best and the brightest are attracted to engineering, do better economically than those who have the best and the brightest are attracted to the law. Sorry. (laughs) And and the reason is, is because the law in most countries is a vehicle for rent-seeking, not a vehicle for entrepreneurship. But that is, in fact, entrepreneurship. It's entrepreneurship in a political direction rather than an economic direction. And so one of the things I want to sort of suggest here is that propensity to truck, barter, and exchange, which is basically Adam Smith's notion of human, uh, human beings, or the propensity to rape, pillage, and plunder, which is basically what Thomas Hobbes has to say, and which propensity we pursue is a function of the rules of the game. So if you walk away from this with anything, you learn about Leone from my lawyer friends, but if you walk away from this, you wanna learn the economics, very simple point. Same players, different rules, produce different games. Economics does not talk about transforming human nature We talk about the rules of the game under which humans interact with one another, and that all the action is in changing not the people, but in changing the rules under which they interact. Okay, change the people, but the rules are the same, you're gonna get the same outcomes. All right, so Hayek and the law. So where is it that we're trying to develop the argument in this paper is that Hayek argues in The Road to Serfdom that the law is a kind of instrument of production. All right. What does he mean by that? The law provides generality, predictability, and equality, which enables economic calculation in a world amidst, uh, amidst flux. Right? If you don't have the law as your touchstone, so you go back and you look at an earlier uh, paper that m- became the general thrust of Epstein's book, Simple Rules for a Complex World, it relates to drawing bright line, red lines in the sand. Because why? Not necessarily, What are they, what's the utilitarian argument for that? The utilitarian argument for that has to do with the consequences for economic calculation. So the rights-based argument provides a sort of basis under which we can then engage in economic calculation. So the utility and rights argument are not necessarily orthogonal to each other. There's a relationship between the two of them as it relates to uh, this. And judge-made law is important in this because it's slow, right? And so therefore, the environment is not constantly changing while the economic environment is. So what you have is you have one variable which is moving kind of slow, so you can treat it as a parameter. And you have other processes of variables going on here, but precisely because you have this parameter, you're able to calculate over it. And that's one of the reasons why the law is so important in this. Leone here, uh, this is Leone's discussion of the law, uh, talks about the relationship between the co-development of free markets as growing in in, uh, greater and greater uh, portion and the idea of the relationship to the common law. And so there's this co-development that takes place between the law and the market. I have two, two more slides, all right, so don't get freaked out. Um, so the key issue here is to move from an analogy to a research program. All right, so what you have in Leone is a lot of analogy. This is kind of what Roger was talking about at the end. There's these ambiguities that are in it because it's built on an argument from analogy. He's analogizing from the market back to the law, from the law back to the market, okay, which is one of the reasons why he's in simpatico with Hayek, on these ideas, but then how do you translate that into a modern scientific uh, sort of research program? And the key issue there is to understand what are the preconditions that are involved in economic calculation. So what socialism couldn't achieve, markets could achieve. right? This is the reason Mises, for example, introduces economic calculation well before he discusses the problems of socialism. It's the nature in which markets operate. The way we operate is to have money prices. These money prices are aids to the human mind. The division of labor is not possible right, without this aid to the human mind to help us calculate the alternative uses of resources. As Adam Smith points out, we wouldn't get a common woolen coat, and as Leonard Reed wrote 200 years later, we wouldn't get a pencil were it not for the market to be able to allocate all these and incentivize individuals to do this. And so, what are we learning from this? As Roger says, this is a knowledge problem associated with legislation. Legislation suffers a knowledge problem in the same way that centralized planning or regulation suffers from a knowledge problem. Uh, in addition, by the way, it suffers from a political problem. But that's part of what Hayek argues in in Law, Legislation, and Liberty, and also in the in the um, in the Constitution of Liberty. But we'll have to leave that for another day. So, what we are trying to do as a research program, let's say at George Mason, where we focus a lot on development economics, is we're sort of looking at the interrelationship between law, politics, culture, and economic development. This has taken place in our transition studies. It's also uh, been translated into some of our work on disaster recovery. Why is that important? Because smash the legal, political, and social and cultural you know, institutions that exist, now watch them reform. How do they reform and co-evolve with, with market phenomena? So let me just leave you with this, um, and then we'll, and then I'll, I'll finish this. Uh, I think that there is an underlying idea of such a theory that there is a market of the law as well as there is a market of goods. I'll stop right there because I don't want to read this thing, but, you, you know, this is a letter from Leoni to Hayek. This is a research program. That research program translates into polycentricism and how do we understand polycentric orders, all right? It also, you can think about that in terms of this earlier literature that I was talking to you about having to do with polycentricism, which is like how the West grew rich kind of argument, but it's also in more like in in Todd's former colleague, uh, Larry Ribstein, in the market for law in the United States in which you have competition or jurisdictional competition and what that means both for law and for politics is extremely important. And Leone put these ideas in our head. This is one of the reasons why Buchanan had him come over and, and, and give lectures to the Thomas Jefferson Center way back in the 19, early 1960s. It's why it is that Leonard and Walter you know, gave this book that was t- collecting a lot of dust mites or whatever uh, and kept pushing it on all the young people to do it. And it's the reason why you know today we're celebrating Leone's idea. Leone's uh, sort of idea and, and, and efforts to uh, put forth a, polycent- a notion of a polycentric order is something that's extremely attractive in a very live research program in the social sciences. And at that, I'll, I'll close. Thank you. Thank
0: you very much, Pete. Now we stay with the George Mason research program <laughs> but we go back to law with Todd <laughs>
3: George Mason Law School and the George Mason Economics certainly are uh, a George Mason research uh, program. We're friends. We're friends. Right. <laughs> um, uh, I, I first read Leone before I went to law school, and in um, law school, then became somewhat of, uh, of um, a shock because it seemed to me that Leone had it all right in law school, then about law, and then law school had it all wrong. Uh, but uh, but uh, but one of the things I want to talk about is that Leone has um, a somewhat um, different view of the law than prevails today, and so it's very important to understand a lot of things about Leone just in order to understand that. Um, and I want to take I want to start off like Leone being so provocative, and um, take um, what Leone says in his own introduction to um, Freedom of the Law. Um, which is, uh, I want to take as, as past he says, my earnest suggestion is that those who value individual freedom should reassess the place of the individual within the legal system of as a whole. It is no longer a question of defending this or that particular freedom to trade, to speak, to associate with other people, etc. nor is it a question of deciding what special good kind of legislation we should adopt instead of a bad one. He says... It is a question of deciding whether individual freedom is compatible in principle with the present system centered on and almost completely identified with legislation. This may seem like a radical view. I do not deny that it is, but radical views are sometimes more fruitful than syncretic theories that serve to conceal the problems more than to solve them. And I want to take that as Leone's hypothesis, as I talk about Leone today, which is, can freedom survive in a legal system centered on legislation over the long run as opposed to a legal system centered on the common law and especially a common law of the type that uh, that he describes? And that very quickly gets us into a variety of questions, which is first, what is the nature of the common law versus the nature of legislation? And why does Leone believe that one is uniquely compatible with a free society and not the other? And secondly... Um, what are the concepts that underlie that as a normative concept? What what is he trying to get at, and what is Leone's particular contribution to this in terms of picking up on Pete Betke's point about uncertainty um, in, in coordination? Now, first, uh, Leone's a little bit uh, uh, difficult to, to access, and so for those who have not read Leone. Um, I commend you to think of Leone, uh, at least for uh, shorthand, as being very similar to Hayek in Law, Legislation, and Liberty. And in fact, it's more than just an analogy. As far as I could tell, going back and rereading Freedom and the Law from beginning to end for the first time in a while, Hayek essentially stole Leone uh, uh, of whole cloth uh, and pretty much uh, didn't give him credit for it. He gave him some credit for it. But um, I, obviously I'm, I'm being flipped. I love Law, Legislation and Liberty, but you can see the ideas of Leone written in 1961 in Law, Legislation and Liberty, and and it's more than just an analogy, which is, if you recall, up uh, uh, through the road to serfdom and the Constitution of Liberty, you will search in vain for Hayek talking about the common law. Uh, He talks about the old uh, Rechstat concept and the formalistic notion of the common law uh, formalistic notion in the uh, uh, road to serfdom, basically formal uh, restraints on the legislature. It's clear he is addressing himself to the legislature. In Constitution of Liberty, he continues the uh, Rechstat, uh, uh idea of, of the law and the rule of law. And although he talks about the evolution of, uh, of freedom in England, he doesn't really talk about it from the uh, common law perspective. Then all of a sudden in 1972 with the first volume of Law, Legislation and Liberty. Rules and order, the common law becomes the organizing principle of that book. And the contrast between uh, law, law meaning common law, and legislation, obviously meaning uh, uh, legislation. What happened during that period? As far as I could tell, what happened, as suggested by Pete's last slide, is that Hayek met Leone. Uh, and Leone's concept in law, legislation, and in, in freedom and the law is he bases on this notion of the Roman juris consult. I don't know Roman law. I don't know anything about the Roman german uh, jurisconsult. It seems to be some sort of elite lawyers who basically uh, um, came up with uh, what the ideas of the law should be. But Leone very quickly, and uh, apparently quite accurately, uh, um, draws a contrast or comparison, an analogy, a virtual identicality in his book between the Roman jurisconsults and the common law judge that Hayek talks about in uh, A Law, Legislation, and Liberty, and basically uses the concept uh, interchangeably, so that the analytical structure that Leone uses in Freedom in the Law uh, talking about Roman law developed in the Juris Council is effectively, as he says essentially the same process that Hayek talks about, of the common law process under the English uh, common law. Now, what is this for uh, for Leone? First is the idea that we've talked about, which is law is a spontaneous order, and picking up on the point that, uh, uh, that Alberto made, the notion, the centrality of law as individual claim. Uh, 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 Alberto has on uh, on his website um, a marvelous um, uh, English uh, language documentary that was prepared in connection with uh, the 100th uh, anniversary of uh, Leone. And uh, and Alberto has a very nice discussion of this and his uh, clips in that. And I learned a lot just from watching that uh that interview, so thank you, Alberto, and I hadn't really understood this until uh, until I heard your remarks, which is law is an individual claim, which is that uh, this is the first notion in which uh, Leone sees um, um, uh, common laws intertwined with liberty, which is that, what does he mean by that? Judges in a common law process or the jurist consults in the Leone process, don't. They the law leaves you alone unless you ask the law to help you. The law leaves you alone unless you invoke the judge to resolve a dispute that has risen between you. So that basically, you can go about your business, and if everything works fine, you never have to call in the, uh, call in the, uh, the state. The second thing he notes is that by definition and by design, the, the, the judge or the, uh, the consult or whoever decides the case, their, their law is literally limited only to the facts of that case in your dispute. It, conceptually has extension to other cases, but it literally just applies to your particular dispute. What does that mean? It means that you're bound by it, Others are not necessarily, but embedded in the common law, and this is an idea I got from my old professor, uh, Bob Staff, is the ability to contract around the con- uh, common law uh, rules, which is common law rules are there as inputs into people's decision making, but if you don't like them, you're always allowed to contract around them and design different sorts of rules for, your, uh, for, your, for yourself, uh, which I think is consistent with, uh, with the idea that Leone has uh, here. Uh, which is that it is individual decisions, the individual choice to invoke the state, is what calls the uh, calls the government into it, um, and this is, I think, uh, to some extent, uh, um, what he has in mind with this uh, this passage that uh, um, that uh, Roger described of a spontaneous. Uh, a spontaneous uh, uh, order and a market analogy that basically uh, that it's sort of back and forth between individuals making individual claims, judges resolving them, and that coming back in as an input into people's uh, um, decision making. He contrasts this with uh, legislation, uh, which is enforced on everyone. So for instance, you and I could enter into a contract for me to have you come work at my shop and we could contract about the terms and the, uh, and the uh, rates and everything else. The very definition of a minimum wage is that I'm not allowed to contract with you in a way that both of us find advantageous. Legislation is, by definition, binding on everyone, basically. It basically forces us, and it acts on us whether we want it to or not. And that gives rise to a lot of rent-seeking problems and that sort of thing. And, um, uh, and in fact, Leone himself was an early adopter of public choice. You see public choice in the understanding of the legislative process in a very well-developed form here. Um, you know, six, uh, 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 calculus of consent was 1967, for instance, right? So Leone is very much a, an earlier adapter of this. He contrasts that process where, the, where legislation acts on people, whether you want it or not, with um, the common law process. And we referred to this earlier, the notion. He has this key idea where he talks about that the way the, uh, um, the common law works is that judges seek to discover the law. Um, And so he said both the Roman and and the English shared the idea that the law is something to be discovered more than to be enacted and that nobody is so powerful in a society as to be in a position to identify his own will with the law of the land, unlike a legislature uh, or apparently now a uh, president. Um, uh, And and what does he mean by this? This is often misunderstood in Hayek and misunderstood in in Leone. And it's this notion of finding the law uh, and discovering the law. What do they mean? The common law, and I'm going to just use common law as a shorthand, is a conceptual system. The law of the common law is a conceptual system for which the articulation and judicial decisions are verbal attempts to articulate the underlying concepts, but it's the concepts, the concepts of the common law that are the law, not the precise linguistic choices of judges. Now, why does this matter? It matters for a couple reasons, which is first, modern law has that confused. Modern law school, through the, and through the doctrine of stare decisis, thinks of the precise verbal articulations by judges as being the law. Why do they do that? Because they have this flawed positivist concept uh, uh, that comes uh, borrowed from legislation that basically says, well, legislatures make the law and judges make the law when they decide cases. Judges decide cases, but the logic of the common law was as conceptual, it was the underlying logic. Where did those concepts come from? They basically came from the spontaneous process of individuals making claims, having judges resolve them, leading to other individuals making claims, leading to other judges to resolve them, and this back and forth, this iterative sort of uh, sort of process. So for instance, Leone criticizes Supreme Courts as a bastardization of the common law process. Why? This will sound familiar, at least to some of us. The Supreme Court seems to sometimes think of itself as a super legislator, uh, imposing uh, itself on on society and binding other parties. Whereas Leone said, that's not how this works. It was a back and forth, multiple different courts borrowing from each other and people responding to it. He also has a very flexible view of precedent. Not the modern view of stare decisis, where one case makes the law, but precedent is a pattern of cases decided by individual judges persuaded by, the, by, their, um, by their, um, their logic. Now, why does this matter? This is the most important idea that comes out of Leone and the most provocative is that what this all means is that the common law is, um, a more, is uh, less uncertain than legislation that the common law is less uncertain than legislation. And what he does is he draws a distinction between what could be called, what he calls short run and long run certainty. So he says, uh, um, while legislation is almost always certain, that is precise and recognizable, as long as it is in force, people can never be certain that the legislation enforced today will be enforced tomorrow or even tomorrow morning. The legal system centered on legislation while involving the possibility that the other people in the legislatures may interfere with their interactions every day also involves the possibility that they may change their way of interfering every day. As a result, people are prevented not only from freely deciding what to do, but from foreseeing the legal effects of their daily behavior. Raise your hand if this sounds like something you may have read in the newspaper uh, recently, right? And this is the underlying point in which Leone and the common law goes together with Pete Betke's observations, which if he is true, legislation, and even worse, we see now administration, um, or a president who says, I have a pen. Law-making law by blog post and press conference. Uh, 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 what he, um, um, I'm sure uh, um, Mr. Leone is rolling in his grave uh, whenever, he, uh, whenever he sees this, right? Which is his point is because common law is conceptual, because it evolves out of people litigating concrete disputes where frictions arise in their life and leaves people alone when it doesn't arise in their life, Because it articulates these concepts to people, it may be somewhat unclear in the short run who is in the right, or in an immediate case, but over the long run, it comports with people's expectations. Compare that to the modern legislative and administrative state, which he very accurately says, the law today may not be the law tomorrow, and in fact, as we've seen, the law this morning may not actually be the law this afternoon if there happens to be a presidential press conference. Uh, uh, for, for instance, right? And so I think that the genius of Leone, and why I start with that, in his observation that he's making a radical observation, right, but he says sometimes the radical observations illuminate things that are otherwise obscured, which is 50 years ago, Bruno Leone saw the essence of lawmaking by common law versus lawmaking by legislation, Administration and eventually blog post and press conference, uh, and uh, and saw the internal essence of these two different systems and the paths they lead us down, and basically said, "It may not look this bad today, but let me tell you, these are, this is the path that we are on." So to return to his opening question, um, uh, can um, uh, uh, is individual freedom, compatible in principle with the present system centered on and almost completely identified with legislation. I think that uh, Bruno Leone uh, was quite prescient in his observations along those lines. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, uh, Todd. We have 20 minutes uh, for Questions and comments, Fred Smith. Can you, pl- of course, Fred Smith? But if you can identify yourself, too, will be nice oh. for recording purposes.
4: Yeah. i Fred Smith. One um, <laughs> of the questions that uh, I don't know whether uh, Leone or others dealt with or not, but you pointed in our uh, repeat park about the. They're going from the small circle to the middle-sized circle to the big circle, and the errors are the critical <laughs> variables we need to better understand. We understand that, in a sense, all society began with xenophobic tribal societies that didn't deal with anyone outside and created very strong rules not to do so, and reasonable rules within the tribe to do better than otherwise. We, How did that process take place? It seems like nobody really deals with it that I've read yet, and, I mean, trial and error, I guess, eventually, but... And also, a a critical part of that, which we see in America, the failure to allow institutions to co-evolve with those breakouts, property rights particularly. I mean, we're having now the fracking problem largely because, and the potential, because we do have subsurface mineral rights. And the problem, because we do not have subsurface rights in water, and in Europe we don't have either, and we have a blockage. The breakout from the small to the middle to the large, any thoughts about property rights and any other ideas about how that breakout occurs? Could Leonie
2: talk about that? Well, the um, the evolution of property rights obviously is a major part of, of being able to do that. Um, and uh, But, I mean, you're raising a broader issue, which is also how does our empathy grow beyond our, our small group into larger groups and whatnot? And so how do our differences become our strengths rather than the things that we battle over? I mean, that's a sort of an age-old question. I mean, Todd... Would be very good to maybe answer this because of the issue that he's done on evolution and evolutionary group selection and whatnot. Um, You know, I mean, so I'll I'll defer to Todd on this issue because it's a it's a puzzle that Hayek dealt with, right? Which is that the our moral intuitions are driven by small group identification, but the moral demands of the great society require that we engage in anonymous interactions. And how is it that you um, sort of deal with those questions of agent heterogeneity and institutional diversity? Um, actually, I, I think an aspect of Todd's argument about Leone, this issue about when the common law is binding or whatnot, is the same kind of thing when you think about evolution of property rights: when scarcity binding, right? So we don't have a market for beaver pelts until the beavers end up by being. You know, sort of uh, in short supply. Then all of a sudden, you get property rights and the hunting rights, right? That's like a Demset story, and I think that's probably true of what you're seeing now. But I'll turn it over. You want to say something about group selection and <laughs> and that kind of stuff because that's a big question.
3: I'm not sure I want to say anything about group selection, but uh, but what it does raise uh, on on the issue that um the people. Could, don't always appreciate about the common law is it's process that Hayek talked about, about the abstractness in the common law, right? So one of the things that I didn't talk about, that's not, not in Leone, but, but it's an insight about the common law is that the common law, um, sh- it should be in, in general properly understood in this view that Leone has, where precedent is flexible, uh, where it's basically collaborative, is the common law is more resistant to rent seeking pressures than legislation. Uh, which is because common law operates in this conceptual framework where you go from individual cases up to abstract concepts like consideration, uh, causation, now, there's all these ideas in the common law that basically, for, and, th- and this is high explore, that force you to articulate it at an, at an abstract level. It's more naturally generalizable along the lines that you're uh, saying, Fred, in the anal- analogical process. That, whereas legislation almost by definition is specific, right? It's aimed at very specific actions of people to tell people what to do or not, uh, not to do. And so, for instance, in a world like landlord-tenant law, which is just basic or employ, employment law, which is just contract law in a particular context, but it's gotten taken over by legislation or regulation. What do you see? Rent seeking galore, right? Rent seeking, power struggles, because in those situations you have discrete winners and losers uh, who fight with each other. When it comes to things like more customary law, common law, these abstract sort of notions, you don't know whether you're going to be the plaintiff or the defendant, right? Consideration or these concepts are not necessarily good for the promissor or the promisee. They just are, right? They're just m- means for people to coordinate their affairs. And so uh, this isn't exactly your point, I think. But but thinking in terms of the way in which discrete decisions made in particular contexts can develop abstract rules which are neutrally applicable to, uh, to people, which is, I think, the notion of uh, the common law that Hayek and Leonie have in mind, can uh, um, can 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 further this goal of, uh, uh, of of coordination. So a final word on that is people are often confused about Hayek's discussion of legislation. Hayek um, gets sloppy in how he uses legislation. He has common law and then legislation. Legislation, in theory, could be like common law. Legislation could act in an abstract manner. So for those of you who are lawyers, think about the change from contributory negligence to comparative negligence, which was done in many states by legislation, but was done in an abstract manner, right? Just prospective, but applied generally, as opposed to... And what he says, that's not the norm for legislation. The legislation is only this detailed, specific uh, uh, sort of stuff. So legislation can do it. He just says, generally, the legislative process isn't oriented to producing these abstract rules. So when it comes to perhaps a, a, a legislative approach to these large numbers, I think the lesson that comes out of out of these guys is think about it in these abstract terms, generally applicable rules uh, rather than specific winners and losers.
0: Thank you. Please again identify yourself and give us your affiliation if you have any.
5: Uh, I'm Dean Ahmed with the Minaret of Freedom Institute. Uh, I had a a quick comment, but I wanted to first thank all the speakers for a very rich and and deep exploration of Leone's ideas. Um, My comment is that uh, uh, I think there's one historical fact Leone uh, overlooks that actually supports his thesis very strongly. uh, And that is that rather than look to the Roman uh, law as the analogy with uh, the common law of Britain, which maybe he would think of because he's Italian, uh, that a much more plausible source for historical connection is with the Islamic law, as the idea of a British common law first becomes discussed in 1189, just two years after the British are in the Crusades uh, witnessing the Islamic system, where, although they called it divine law rather than common law, it was a system of discovery. And the Qadis and the Mushtahids did the process of discovery. And the view of human legislation was very much looked down on as a means of the rulers' uh, usurpation of the divine law. Just throw that out for consideration. Any comment?
3: Uh, not, not, uh, that, that's an interesting point. I mean, I'll just say, I, I, I'm not sure if we knew about it, but, but, but in general, one thing to, to keep in mind for both Leone and Hayek is there have there, there th- historically been three different schools of jurisprudence. Natural law, positivism, and a third school called um, historical school of jurisprudence. That has fallen out of favor for some reason that i don 't really understand because I think it 's a very compelling uh, uh, sort of, uh, sort of idea, but Leone and Hayek, and the sources they rely on, are in this stream of the historical school of jurisprudence in which this notion of discovering the law actually meant something and had both positive and normative uh, uh, import and so one of the, the people often read Hayek and say, "Oh." he's anachronistic about uh, his description of the law. I don't think that's right. I think his description of the law is accurate in the era in which he's actually describing, which is that uh, that his, that school of jurisprudence was vibrant. I can't talk about all of that right now, but it affects uh it but but the but the decline of that school and what it meant has opened the door to positivism and positivism. You know, but the second part of this is that positivism's kind of ruining the common law also. So uh, by turning it into a more legislative uh, process.
2: I just wanted to to say something real quick on that related to this process of development, because at the timing that you're talking about, it's true, of course, that the Islamic crescent is actually richer and and whatnot than the rest of Europe. I think the real puzzle to ask then is why uh, wasn't the Islamic law flexible enough to take on then other modern forms? This is uh, my, uh, um, I edit a book series with Timur Koran, and he's written a lot on these kind of issues about how Islamic law at one time served tremendous function and was very, I mean, it was richest place in the world. But then at another time, it ends up by being a block and it's not flexible enough to get these new organizational forms. And I think as if we think about those arrows of the transition, we have to think in those ideas about what are the impediments for the further evolution. And they might in fact be like rent-seeking issues that get in that stop the nature of law or like this kind of thing like Todd's doing. One of the funny arguments in recent years in law schools, it's a little older now, but there's a, uh, a guy at University of Virginia Law School had a Journal of Legal Studies piece on, was Hayek right about the common law? It turns out that the data that he slices that, uh, uh, you know, don't anyone kick me out of this arena. But when the common law is the common law that Hayek liked, the difference in country growth wasn't all that great. Where the common law all of a sudden gets great is when the common law gets taken over to be more, po- you know, and, the, and, and you sort of, you look at it, so he thought he was defending Hayek, but if you actually slice the data the right way, you'd be like, well, wow, that's kind of weird. So precisely when the common law becomes more positivistic that you capture this in some of the data spreads, um, and so it kind of makes the argument kind of interesting. But I think Koran, uh kind of idea about what is those arrows that causes that break when they were medium-sized, why didn't they advance to the later side when they were like the biggest medium-sized one at one time, that's our real question that we have to ask, and this stuff puts it on the table, I think.
1: Uh, let me weigh in here. The, um, Todd mentioned um, a function of legislation that brings to mind um, the idea that there is a, fundamental distinction that hasn't really come out yet quite expressly as it seems to me it should. And that is that adjudication and legislation can be seen as serving two entirely different functions. Uh, The function of adjudication is primarily to settle disputes between the two parties to the dispute uh, in the course of which law gets made or discovered more properly. Uh, legislation in the, func- in the sense in which Hayek and, um, and Leone are condemning it, and rightly so, has a wholly different function. It's policy, parading as law. It is an effort by one part of the population through their representatives to bring about a state of affairs, usually redistributive, uh, that doesn't heretofore exist, and then it passes as law, by giving rights to some people that they didn't have and taking rights from other people that they did have. And so those are very, very different functions. Now, legislation can, as Todd said, serve other functions as well. For example, it can serve as a restatement of the case law that has accumulated and putting it in some kind of order that it is more um, uh, Uh, accessible and and cognizable to those who have to use it and rely upon it. It can also serve a function, as I mentioned in my remarks, of fleshing out aspects of the judge-made law that remain to be fleshed out um, that require uh, a certain uh, value judgment reflecting the values of the community to do so, as for example in nuisance or risk, how much we can we can adjudicate many risk and nuisance um, disputes on a case by case basis, but there does uh, but there is a certain range of such disputes that are best uh, adjudicated through public law, which isn't designed as in the sense as say the social security scheme or Obamacare and so forth, but rather is designed to flesh out more completely the um, the rights that the common law judges have discovered through their adjudicatory process
2: hi my name is Devin Watkins I'm from George Mason Law School um, I understand this Supreme Court centralizing law in some ways, but without that appellate authority, how do you not just have kind of the rule of whatever judge it is that you had that day and have a lot more uncertainty in what the law is instead of more certainty?
1: Who's that question for? <laughs> it's a George Mason discussion.
3: That's a uh, there uh, I could give a long answer. I'll just give a short answer. I've written about this in a uh, in a, a couple of law review articles and econ journal articles. But basically, um, that's what that's what we had for about a thousand years. Uh, and Leone refers to that in his book, which is um, uh, we had over, uh, courts uh, with overlapping jurisdictions, uh, in which parties were actually able to choose which court would hear their dispute. Uh, and basically what would happen over time is that courts, Adam Smith actually writes about this in the, in the wealth of nations. He says the, the reason why English law is so good during that era is because of, uh, these, these centuries where people got to choose which court we're going to hear their dispute. Uh, there were limits on why that would work and that sort of thing. But, um, but it's the, but, but, uh, uh but it was, it was, it was a spontaneous order that did in fact, uh, develop, uh, in the same way that, uh, you know, it, it is it's very similar uh, uh, in the same way that, uh, um, um, you know, you don't have to have somebody to, uh, you don't have a central planner who says how many pairs of shoes or how many uh, ears of corn to grow uh, uh, this year. You just have individual people doing it and somehow they coordinate uh, uh, with each other. So, you know, so the so partly one of the problems that arises, of course, is that um, a Supreme Court becomes more necessary and starts to get intertwined with legislation uh, um, or a, you know, uh, uh, in, the, in that sort of thing, uh, which is in, in that situation where there's only one law, um, you've got to have it. But otherwise, the argument is, is that decentralized sort of processes can lead to better coordination for people than, uh, than a central planner, essentially, through, through a Supreme Court. It's hard to imagine, and there's a lot of inf- uh, intellectual infrastructure, historical and analytical, that goes behind it. But it actually worked perfectly fine for a thousand years in England. Uh, Pietro Masci, uh, my question is uh, um, relatively simple. Why is uh, the influence of uh, Leoni in the Italian political scene uh, so small or uh, negligent? I'm old enough to remember the years of the 50s and 60s that you mentioned were, uh, the years in which there was uh, little government intervention. But at that time there was a small party, the uh, Liberal Party, and uh, uh, of Malagodi, yeah. and there is uh, very little uh, uh, thinking uh, of Leone in the articulation of, uh, of Malagodi. And not to think of, about uh, what happened after, but I think uh, my question is, why is that? That's for you. That's for me.
0: <laughs> uh, Leone was a member of the Liberal Party at the time of Malagodi, but um, he was also a highly critical member of that party. Uh, he used to say that the Liberals were campaigning against the laws they will be passing once they're going to be elected. Um, <laughs> it says something of how classical liberal the Liberal Party actually was not the fact that in 1965 there was some kind of a summer school of the Italian Liberal Party and they were dividing themes and topics and assigning those to different scholars uh, or journalists close to the party itself. And Leone was there and gave a lecture, but he was actually asked to give a lecture on the Italian flag. (laughs) Very interesting subject insofar as political symbols are concerned. Uh, But, you know, um, the, the, the chapter on economic matters actually was given to Eugenio Scalfari, which is a name that won't say anything to the non-Italian in the audience, but was basically uh, Keynesianism translated uh, into um, Italian. So I will say that the short answer to that question is that he died too young. Leone died at 54. So he was really uh, at the top of his intellectual production we may speculate that it would have addressed some of the problems that were put on the table today. For for example, insofar as pluralism, in one of his latest essays, he speaks about the Leoni model, which is really uh, what you call polycentrism nowadays. Um, And it would have been because of his temper and because of his uh, humanity, because of, of, of his call, a more influential voice in, 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 in the Italian debate. Of course, you could also argue that he, he would have been uh, desperate because a few years uh, after his death, I mean, even terrorism was taking off in Italy, and, and we were actually uh, the Western country that got closest ever to, to a Marxist revolution, basically, in the 70s. Is there any other question or comment? lunch. Okay, I don't want to stand in the way to lunch. Let me uh, <laughs> thank Roger Pilon and Pete Betke and Todd for their wonderful remarks and for uh, helping us, I mean, in digging into a great thinker, I think, and, and, and a great uh, hero of libertarianism in the, last, uh, uh, in the last century. But let me also thank Cato for organizing this, and in particular, Aaron Ross Powell that put us together. And thank you all for your attention. Thank you very much.